Welcome to the Homeschool High School Podcast, brought to you by SevenSistersHomeschool.com and the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. And I am your host, Vicki Tillman, and I am not with Sabrina or Kim or Marilyn today, because they are scattered far and we, as the poet E.E. E. Cummings would say. And instead, I'm talking to one of my new friends, one of our seventh sisters, and her name is Kat Patrick. So Kat has lived 25 years in England, like how cool is that, and has recently come to Texas, and we met each other online in one of our like Facebook groups, so our, uh, our friend circle is pretty big, but now we can see each other because we're talking on Skype. So Kat is an interesting person. So she has her PhD from the University of Delaware in English. And then she went to England, which is really cool. So she was at the University of Delaware. And my office where I work and where I'm recording at this moment is about a mile from the University of Delaware campus. And Kat moved recently to Texas where I was born. It's just really weird. So... (laughs) We've we've got all these strange connections already. So Kat owns her own online education business where she teaches English because she couldn't find things that were fitting for her kids. So she teaches English to uh, kids all over the world on every continent. She's got students. She writes at Boy Schooling Blogspot. I can talk. And uh, is a contributing uh, writer for... The Learning Tangent magazine. So get my tongue untangled. And she there's a really cool article about her in the Telegraph newspaper, which is a big newspaper in England. And it was a nice article. So, uh, so I asked Kat if we could chat today about uh, homeschooling in England and how that is different from homeschooling in the States. So does that sound good, Kat? Yes. Hi, Vicki. Thanks for having me. I don't know whether to say howdy, because I was born in Texas, or whether to say hello, because I'd lived the last 25 years in England. You sound like the BBC. Say hello again. Oh, oh yes. Hello. Often people say I actually sound like Monty Python. So if I sound like them, uh, that's where I learned to speak my British accent. So the British accent's not dead yet. No, it comes and goes. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about your family. So I have four children. Their ages are 16, 14, 12, and 10. Girl boy, girl boy. That was a nice balance. I I put my order in and just God submitted what I needed. (laughs) (laughs) Homeschooling began when my eldest was about three. She did go to Montessori for a little while. But in England, they expect children to start formal schooling from the, it depends on the county, but my county was the year they turned five. Ah, mm -hmm. My daughter was born at the end of July, so she was due to start school four weeks after she turned four. Oh, my goodness. She was a bright little spark. She Uh could read and she could do some writing and she was very clever, but emotionally she was still a baby and I knew that sending her to formal school was not going to happen and plus in Texas you don't have to send children to school until they're over six years old so my first thought was we'll just keep her at home until she's six 
And then when we got to six, over my dead body, was I going to send her to school? <laughs> because she was learning so much, and her siblings and she were so close together. I think about that time I had number four, and I was just seeing so much growth with them together. Yeah. Plus dragging the baby out twice a day in all weathers, because we mostly walk to school in England. They're nowhere no places to park your car, so you uh, need to walk anyway. Uh -huh. And I thought, I'm not dragging that baby out. I'd just rather lie down here all morning and breastfeed her and read <laughs> stories. So um, that's how I started homeschooling. And also, uh, I had been a teacher, so I knew what I was missing and very happy yeah. to do so. Yeah, so for you, it was a good choice for your first daughter's like developmental process. And yes. it was a practical thing for your family, but you must have been enjoying it because you wouldn't have kept it up otherwise. Yeah, it became so organic as part of our family. I just yeah. couldn't see the sense in changing that. Yeah. So in England, homeschooling's not as big here, uh, there as it is in the States. Like right now, I think the U.S. Department of Education estimates around 2 million students that are homeschooling. And I was reading in that Telegraph article that there are about 37,000 homeschoolers that they know of. And so you were more of a kind of a pioneer, I think, in homeschooling, do you think? Um, so I need to just go on a little rabbit trail here about the history and the way that homeschooling happens in England because yeah. that 37,000 is completely stupid. Okay. <laughs> okay. The truth of the matter is nobody knows how many there are, okay. which frightens the government to absolute pieces. Um, but the, the law, when it began back in the, you know, when they first started doing public education in Victorian times, the, they were adamant that all children should go to school in order to protect them from child labor. Uh, and also to educate them mm -hmm. so that they would be even better adult labor. <laughs> but the posh people who had their own tutors and their own governesses and things did not want to be part of that law. So it says, basically, you must send your children to school or educate them otherwise. So in England, it's a big phrase to say education otherwise. That is the law. Ah. And that's under which, the banner under which homeschoolers come in England. And by the way, they like to call it home education. Oh, you're not, not homeschooling. Home no, no, because they're very adamant that the term homeschooling smacks of schooling at home and they're ah. not pro-schooling at home at all. They tend to, well, I hate to say tend to, because just like here, you can say your phrase, Vicki, if you would like to, about not being... There's not uh, one way to homeschool. <laughs> exactly. So there's not one way that people home educate in England, yeah. but they do like to call it home education or shorten it to H-E. Ah. So that means in law, if you never send your child to school, if you never register your child for school, nobody knows about your children and education. Now, your doctor knows you and your dentist knows you and your vicar knows yeah. you and your, the librarian knows you and everybody knows you're homeschooling. So it isn't like you're all locked away and in some kind of social services danger. That's a huge misunderstanding yeah. in England amongst the child protection services that you're somehow cloistered away. But that 37,000 would be a statistic of the people who've withdrawn from schools. 
Oh my goodness. And every day, thousands more are withdrawing. So that, that number is yeah. very out of date anyway. Mm. And they're withdrawing for a whole number of reasons. But most of the reasons you see on the Facebook pages are exam stress for the children as they mm -hmm. get older, school refusers, bullying, mm. and special needs that aren't being met. Now, we get the question all the time on Home Education UK pages about, does that mean everyone who home educates has a problem? Uh. Because everyone writing on the Facebook pages, or they've got problems, they're wanting advice, they need help. Mm -hmm. But of course, people are choosing to homeschool or home educate for all kinds of reasons. And for many people that were in my circle, it was a choice a preference to do so. Some of them were kind of, I have a very lovely friend, hi Kim, I'll just say, who is uh, one of these, I don't know, she's a very nature mama. She's very much into, and it's partly because of her children too. She's got yeah. a boy who is all boy. She's raising him on her own as a widow. She's doing a fantastic job, but she's definitely more in the free spirit. Let's go hunt for mushrooms and identify them and let's go have forest school. And so she has chosen for her children. It's the right way. And she's tried school a couple of times, had some aborted efforts and both and, and every time says, this is for the birds. This is not childhood. By the way, she's a trained Montessori teacher, so she just finds it so restrictive, and yeah. the point is just not where she wants her children to go. So you have all you have all the spectrums of people homeschooling, but yeah. um, that's why that number thirty seven thousand is not true. So it's really thirty seven thousand that they can track that have withdrawn from school, but because of the British laws, as long as they are being educated then they don't ever have to go register with the schools. Like, so legally, what did you have to do to homeschool your kids? Did you have to go get, like, in some states in the U.S., they have to go register with the local school board, or, um, you know, there's some kind of, like, out-of-the-home accountability. So, which I, I think is, you know, I don't like that. So, um, but what, in England, what did you have to do? So, England... And Texas are very similar, which is nothing. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As long as you don't register for children to go to school in the first place, you never have any intervention from the local authority unless you want it. But personally, and over the years, and many people advise who have experience say, don't get the local authority involved unless you absolutely have to. It's not legal to do it. You don't have to have them come to your house and look at your children's papers. And some people find that when they do agree to that, they have very nice people who come. But in my county, do I want to say its name? No, I won't. <laughs> but maybe people can work it out if I say I lived in Chalbury. Um, in my county, uh, we had some bad hombres, should we say, uh -huh. in our local authority who overstepped their bounds and didn't know the laws and would be very bullying to some people who were home educating who needed help and these people just wanted to harass them and harangue them and so you can end up with someone lovely coming to your home for two or three or four years in a row but in the local authority the employees change like a revolving carousel and the next time you might get someone who thinks they're um a um 
self-proclaimed expert on certain special needs and they start trying to push you into certain tests and label your child and push books on you and then start trying to say, no, this child needs to be in school because they have X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And it might not be true. So it's just best, I think, that unless you have to have the meetings, they come during your school time. Mm -hmm. So they're interrupting your home education in order to come and look and see what you're doing. It's not legal for them to do that. Not necessary. Yeah. I mean, in some cases it is legal, but in most cases it isn't. So really you had a lot of freedom there in the UK to educate your kids without interference. And people could ask for help if they wanted it, but it was always kind of a little bit of a crapshoot to see uh, what, whether it was positive or negative help. Well, indeed. And, and one of the problems that we even experienced locally was the local authority was not giving the local uh, a person their access to the local community and kept them in the dark for three or four years oh. about how many home educators there were in, our, in this place. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, and it, it was so funny because we had a meeting with the local authority and some home educated um, parents and they brought along this person to say how much they enjoyed and benefited from having the meetings. And when she discovered they were keeping her in the dark, she was absolutely livid. Yeah. <laughs> so Four years in yeah. isolation because they kept her that way. So there are fun and games yeah. if you get involved with some authorities and of course, that's not saying that the authority is like that now. They will have changed personnel and they will probably have a different um, approach. But yeah. it's just, like you say, a crapshoot. So did your kids then, since they were kind of like off the grid as far as education, um, then they did not need to take any state-mandated tests. Like I was reading some of those articles that you sent me. They have like six-year-olds starting to take a standardized nationwide test, I believe. That's another reason I didn't want my daughter to start um, school because uh, at that time they took exams at seven uh. and again at sort of 10. Um, and then they used to take them at 14, but I think they've got rid of those now. And then they take them at 16 and at 18. So there is a statistic that England or the UK has the most examined nationally examined students in the world, I believe, but yeah. that could be wrong. That could just be anecdotal, but they're overly examined. And if, and you get two problems. One is the school benefits from those test scores in terms of a national ranking. So oh. it's part of their marketing to be good in these exams. Like our colleges here do with the SATs, they rank, you know, their incoming freshmen with the who has the highest scores. So they do that at high school and younger age with these test right. scores. Oh my. Right. Uh -huh. The test scores reflect on the school. Mm -hmm. And also the schools are monitored and checked over by a national body to see how well they are living up to the standards of the exams. So you can get a bad grade from this body who comes in and checks you, this watchdog body, if you don't teach to the exam and get good grades for your kids. And so what kind of education just lurches from exam to exam to exam? There's very little new learning every year. Yeah. And I just think it's stultifying. I don't see the purpose of it. 
Yeah, so you have teachers that are under the pressure to teach to the exam, which, you know, we see in our local schools here. While we don't have too much of a federally mandated, except for the Common Core um, kind of education system, but the states all have different state tests, and the schools are, are required to kind of have good performance on those state tests, or they're punished in very different ways. So, um, and homeschoolers, we get to escape that by and large in a lot of states. So when you, when you home educated your kids there in UK, they did not have to take any of those exams. Right. And it's true. You don't ever have to take the exams, although the exams at 16 and at 18 are the ones that are influential in getting into university uh. so, and, and for quite a number of jobs. So there's a basic level of, of education that people expect for you to, you don't really graduate from high school, but um, they do, there is a, a huge pressure to take the 16 year old exams, uh -huh. particularly, not quite so much the 18 because they're more kind of like a college prep exam. And one of the things that really bugs me about the English system, and apologies to all my friends who are English because I love England, except the rain and the cold and the dark. <laughs> but other than that, I, lo I love England and I love living there for so many years. Um, but I also love walking barefoot with my dogs in the morning in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder about the 16 year old exam. The, the exams at 16, I'll come back to, because what I wanted to say was the 18 year old exams, you only usually take, if you're going to head for university and you want to get these higher qualifications called A-levels, meaning advanced levels, then you will only take three or four total. So you study for two years only three or four subjects. Biology, maths, English, something like that. And then at university you study, in general, you study one subject for three years. So you're specializing yeah. in, in early. Those, <laughs> yeah, so the, the idea of a liberal arts education where you're covering world languages and history and yeah, it doesn't this. happen. doesn't happen. Oh. It happens up until 16. Yeah. And then you start to narrow down. And my personal bugbear with that is that when I went to university as an undergrad, I started off as a pre-med student. And I studied for two years pre-med. And then I decided, you know, I don't really like this. <laughs> I much prefer English and history. And so I changed my major. And I then became a literary historian. If I'd been in England... At the age of 16, I would have said, I'm going the medical route. They call it medicine. Uh, medicine. I would have studied at A-level biology, chemistry, mathematics, and physics. No English. I would have had to drop all that. Mm. I would have gone to university. They study medicine for three years. Think about this. The doctors study for three years. Uh -huh. <laughs> but then it's a very long apprentice for the doctors in England. Yeah. And if I decided I wanted to change to English partway through my university degree, it would have been nigh on impossible because I hadn't studied it past 16. So at 16 in UK, you have to make your life career decision. Yes. How many 16-year-olds know what really what they're called to do that's that's kind of scary and you start making the decisions actually at 14 when you start choosing the subjects you're going to study 
in essentially your freshman and sophomore year. You already are starting to weed out some things. So if you were, uh, and you didn't realize that actually you were a linguist and you could be really great at three or four languages, mm -hmm. but you cut down all your languages and just did one, then you've, it's much harder than to claw your way back. And even worse, let's say you know you're a linguist and you want to study French and German and Spanish and Latin. The timetable of the school will timetable those things at the same time and you can't do it. Amazing. So how did that kind of educational philosophy affect your kids? So from a very young age, we walked to a different drummer for that reason. I mean, in primary school, I have to say that Again, it's a big generalization, but it's quite typical for people at primary school age in England to have a more unschooling view of uh -huh. things. You do uh -huh. get some people who are quite structured, but my observation is most people are pretty free-flowing, lots of co-ops, lots of social activities, lots of field trips. And then you start getting to middle school, probably about the age of 13, and parents will go, oh my gosh, it's exam time in two years. We have to start studying for exams. And then they will go through the panic of how do you do exams? Where do you find an exam center? Which brand of exam do you do? Which ones are the easiest? They often start with something like maths or biology because they're right or wrong. And then um, we always warn people, because I'm also an examiner in England, for English oh, uh -huh. and those of us who tutor English and examine in English we say put English off because you need maturity in your writing do it one of the last things so that your kids have nous which means knowledge you know like worldly knowledge and they can read between the lines and they can express themselves better so um, so many of my friends we were just lollying along enjoying our history going to Stonehenge and Windsor Castle and all these things and their kids hit 13 and they suddenly stuck them all in tutorials with people to cram for the exams and my sadness is that it is possible to actually study the subject like English from the age of 12 or 13 and take your exams at the age of 15 or 16, but not study the darn exam syllabus the whole time. Yeah. Study English, study the subject. Yeah. This is what Dreaming Spires does. It's, it's yeah. Charlotte Mason influenced. We read a lot of books. We make connections between the books and among the books. Year after year, we study history and art history and all kinds of things rolled into one. And I get a lot of people in England saying, yes, but you know, you're not teaching to the syllabus. It's like, dude, if you read the books, honestly, some of the exams, if you choose your papers right, you can turn up. And well, I also teach them how to write proper literary analysis. You just write a literary analysis of it. In fact, this is a bit bizarre what I'm about to say, okay. but you really could just do a very good Charlotte Masony liberal arts study for all those years. And about a month before the exam, read the books, choose some books on the syllabus that you like, read them a couple of times, turn up to the exam and choose all the passage-based questions because you know how to write literary analysis. You don't need to study for the exam.
Well, okay. And so that's what, what we believe a lot about our SATs over here is if the kids have a good education, they are well prepared and then they just need a little bit of maybe like how to do this specific test yeah. rather than spending their whole high school years educating to the SATs or the ACTs for their college entrance stuff. I'm a vision person. I don't see mm -hmm. the point in being that utilitarian and that narrow. It's such a shame. It, I think it wastes a lot of good years of uh, personal formation and the things that maybe God has put in our hearts to teach our kids. So, all right, so, so we'll do our shameless plug. So tell okay. how people who would be interested in your courses can get in contact with you. Oh, I'd love to say. Okay, so first of all, we, um, I teach four years of English. I also have on board a fantastic Open University professor from England who's teaching ancient history, Roman and Greek history. I have another chap from England who is teaching Spanish in two years, um, aiming to help my daughter clip out. <laughs> so that's why I brought him on board. And uh, I've also got someone who's starting a whole series of science who's te teaching biology in a living way. And year on year, I tend to add new subjects. So um, if those subjects aren't hitting people's nerves right now, not something they want, just keep an eye out because I might be offering something in the future. But the website is, www.dreaminspireshomelearning.com. I'm also on Facebook under Dreaming Spires Home Learning, and I'm on Instagram with Dreaming uh, underscore Spires underscore Home underscore Learning. I, I'm wondering about now that you have moved to Texas, how your education has changed with your kids, if it's changed at all. Well, for one thing, my schedule is a bit screwy and difficult with the, the business because of time zone issues. Ah. If you're teaching people on all the continents, just look at the globe and see how many different time zones there are. Right. So I made a decision last year, because last year was my first year here in America, we just kind of took a red shirt year to feel our way in the new, the new situation, the new friends, the new co-ops, the new social activities. My kids are swimming an enormous amount of uh, swimming at a really fantastic club locally. Um, but I did make a bad decision about when I was teaching my courses, so my kids didn't get as much education this year as I would have liked to, at least for, not formal, but the way we do Charlotte Mason, we were less successful. So I've worked this next year at putting all my teaching times on either side of where I do my home education with my kids. Um, but one of the main things that's changed is with my older two, my 16-year-old and my 14-year-old. We've decided to keep my daughter out an extra year of university to give her an extra year. Like I said, red shirt year. Yeah. Uh -huh. So we can feel our way through this. She started dual enrollment classes at the local community college. And our local mm -hmm. community college at the moment has those free tuition. Yeah, I heard about Texas doing uh, that with that. Certain places do, uh -huh. not all of them. Uh -huh. But she's uh, feeling her way with different classes. She's taken two English courses and, and scored about 100% on them. And she tells me all the time, it's because of Dreaming Spires <laughs> that oh, she was prepared for them because there wasn't much tuition in them. It was just um, a lot of assignments and, and answering the assignments and not any input. Um, so fortunately, she had such a good grounding, she didn't need the input. Yeah. Um, 
so that's what what she's doing is exploring the dual enrollment thing and they're studying for the SATs by using um, a free online program just to help them because they've never done any multiple choice in right. England most things are essay writing and of course Charlotte Mason's essay writing so right. they're having to learn how to deal with these multiple choice questions yeah. yeah it's a different mindset so just to be able to be familiar with the test so are your kids that your teens doing career exploration like how are they you know in England if you got it 16 you're you've done your whole career path how how are y'all handling that here well, I'm doing it in the same way, in a godly way, which is listening to God and trying to see what their strengths are. And Imagine that. And, yeah, and go that direction. But we read a book. Um, we started it about two and a half years ago. We just finished it. Very Charlotte Mason of us. Um, and it's uh, oh, the guy's name, that astronaut, Chris Hadfield. And I think it's called something like A View of Life from Space or something like that. I can't remember the title. I'm very bad at the title, even though I was reading it for two and a half years. <laughs> but in his very first introduction, he said he saw the moon landing when he was nine. He's Canadian. And despite all the impossibilities, he decided he would be an astronaut. And so he decided from that age, he would live his life as though he were going to be an astronaut. Even uh, though Can Canada didn't have a space program at the time and NASA mm -hmm. wouldn't accept non-Americans. Right. And I read that, and my daughter, my eldest, so this was like when she was 12 or 13, dissolved into floods of tears. And I said, what? What's that? You know, what's going on? Because we've been talking. She loves astronomy, so she thought she'd go the astronomy route. And she says, Mom, I just want to be a writer. That's oh. all I want to be. I just want to be a writer. Oh. So she's decided from that age of about 12 or 13 that she's going to be a writer. And she has explored it and she writes books. In fact, uh, her pen name is Ellie Firestone. She writes the most adorable little chapter books for sort of eight-year-olds. Another shameless mm -hmm. plug there. She's on yeah. Amazon. All self-published. Um, and she's right now working on a teen novel which has been accepted for something called Pitch Wars. And she's got a mentor, and she will be considered by agents starting in November. So we're really excited. But she's worked so hard at the business side of things. I've helped her with some editing. But she um, really is throwing herself into that. So she's got her mind on what she wants to do. So she was, she was one of those kids that when the light bulb came on, she knew what she wanted to do. She wanted to be a writer, and she had the kind of mom who was willing to invest in all the different angles of that. So, you know, finding her a mentor and learning the publishing industry. So all of that for her is career exploration. Yes, it's a, I don't know if anyone knows... Sally Clarkson's materials in her book, Educating the Wholehearted Child, which was mm -hmm. an absolute foundation of my whole homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And she, I saw her a couple of years ago. She actually came to my house and had lunch with me. I felt a bit like Zacchaeus. I'm coming to oh, your house goodness. today. Oh my gosh, I'll give everything away. <laughs> but she, she went to sign my copy and she'd already signed it in 2005. It was so funny because I first met her then. And she said, Kat, you need to get the updated version of this book. <laughs> and so she's got another newer edition of it where she talks about teens and how to home educate. 
and, and nurture your teens. And she's done it that way with her four children, a very apprentice-based. She, she graduates her high schoolers at 16 and then puts her into apprenticeship situations. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. um, it, they've gone kind of the long route to discovering where they want to be. Um, I think her eldest is 30 and just now really finding her niche. But um, I've, I found that really inspiring. And so my second son, he's going to go into computers of some sort. If the computer's hanging up, literally, he hugs it and it starts to work. He just has this techno affinity with it. And I imagine he's going to go into some kind of animation because that's what really excites him. But in the meantime, he has to do his math and his copywork and his <laughs> narrations and all that. His, his so liberal arts education. He's got to do his liberal arts education, yes. Yeah. So, all right. So for you guys, then your educational style hasn't changed just because you changed locations because you know your kids and what's best for them. So that's the that's why we're homeschooling. So. And I suppose it's lucky that I ended up in Texas where you don't have to uh, satisfy some higher authority in terms of government. Um, obviously, I want to satisfy a higher authority in God, but um, you don't have to jump through hoops for the state. And that gives you the freedom to do a liberal arts education the way you want. We've we In fact, today, after I finish talking to you, we're going to have our last co-op for Texas history. Oh. And we have studied Texas history in a way that I've never seen it explored before and been so excited to learn things about my home state that growing up here I didn't even know. And we've changed our focus to more American history and government, mm -hmm. but we've not changed our method. So still very Charlotte Mason influenced and... You guys do co-oping for some things? We do. Um, I've always done a history co-op just for the, the social aspect and the motivation. And uh, I've got, so we did biology and Texas history this year where I taught the Texas history and my friend taught the biology. And she's the one I've recruited to now start teaching online for me because oh. my kids really enjoyed having biology with her. So um, I'm very grateful for her to agree. <laughs> But there are other co-ops that we've rejected joining because some of them had so many restrictions on them, they felt like school. Yeah. So I didn't see <laughs> the point of that. Um, and some others just didn't fit my timetable. And others, they're just for too young of children. It's very hard, I think, to find things for teens to do together. Maybe with your umbrella school, you guys have more success than that. But it seems to me in Texas anyway, Teens are just spiraling in all different directions, and some are doing AP, some are doing one-day academy, some are doing dual enrollment, some are doing co-ops, some are doing maybe like Bob Jones at home, and some are doing sunlight, or, or anyway, there's just all different ways that people do it, and it means that the Venn diagram has a very small overlap. One of the most successful overlaps we had this year was a neighbor, uh, someone nearby me who ran a woodworking course. And that's uh -huh. where the teens came out of the woodwork and they met yeah. some really good friends that way. That was really exciting. Yeah, and that's that's a perfect illustration of there's not one right way to homeschool, there isn't. but it's really wonderful when we do find that Venn diagram places where our teens can get together and learn from each other. 
so uh, the, to tailor the education to what their needs are and enjoy community where it fits. So, and yeah. I think I think also, and this is it, this is much better in America than England. I have to say, when it comes to activities for teens in the evenings, um, one of the interesting things I found culturally about England was that they're still very much in that Mary Poppins schedule where the children, the dad comes home, at, I mean, the dad doesn't usually come home at six anymore because of long commutes, but the idea is that dad comes home at six, pats the children on the head who are already bathed and fed and ready for bed, and then they go off to bed and that's the end of it. And people still do put their children to bed, even kind of their older children, very early. And there is no playing out in the streets in the evenings because hmm. partly it's cold and partly it's dark, but people are already in bed. Yeah. And I found that really sad, actually, that people <laughs> went to bed so early and didn't play. So what I'm getting at is my children are so involved in the local community with uh, their, my boys are in trail life. My kids do youth group. Um, they do leadership groups. They do the swimming. So their social life is absolutely, as we say in England, chock-a-block with nothing to do with, quote, education. Of course, mm -hmm. it's all education, right? right? But the exciting thing about our church stroke trail life group stroke youth club is that there are a huge number of homeschoolers in it. Uh -huh. So my kids don't feel like the oddballs. And that would be something entirely different that ha that we experienced in England is that in the Boy Scouts group, we were the only homeschoolers and uh -huh. in the church, we were the only homeschoolers. And uh, it makes such a difference when people are are having all those different inputs and those connections. Yeah, having that shared experience there when they get together. So. Well, then, then, you know, I have to say it, you know, homeschooled kids have a wide variety of interests that are unusual for the most public schooled kids. Right, right. And when they start talking about very esoteric things, there is a, there is kind of, I have to say there's a culture in England amongst school kids that if you're smart, that's really uncool. Oh, well, that's American too. Well, yeah. it's, I think it's very prevalent in England. And so when my kids, who are clearly quite clever are around people, they get bullied for being clever. And I just, mm -hmm. that doesn't happen when you're in a big circle of homeschoolers in a youth group. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I always think about the book of Revelation where it talks about us being peculiar people. So I think homeschoolers are kind of peculiar people among, and it's, you know, in God's economy, that peculiarity is beautiful and good. And for our kids to know that, that to be who we are supposed to be, smart and giving and useful and good people, that, that is what is good and right. So I just not... think it's about excellence. Mm -hmm. Why bother to do something if you're not going to strive for the best? And in your studies, you should strive for the best. In your friendships, in your faith, whatever. And I find that not just accepting mediocrity, but expecting it and demanding it is just so uncomfortable and sad. Yeah. So I, I just looked at the clock and realized we have chatted for a while. So I probably ought to bring this to a close. So thank you, Kat, for being here. And one more time, give the address. Dreaming Spires. Dreaming Spires is the name comes from the fact that the city of Oxford is called the city of Dreaming Spires. Ah. 
yes, I live near there. So we're starting to uh, pinpoint where my local authority is. Um, and <laughs> I just love the idea that you um, want to dream for heading to heaven, you know, with your education, yeah. you want to dream for the heights, you want those towers. And so that's my, um, that's why it's called Dreaming Spires. So it's www.dreamingspireshomelearning.com. And that's for kids who would love that Charlotte Mason informed high school level education. It is a wonderful opportunity. So thank yes. you, Kat, for being here on the Homeschool High School podcast, which is brought to you by SevenSistersHomeschool.com and the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. We hope that everybody will take a few minutes and look up Kat and Dreaming Spires. So thank you for joining us today, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.